Welcome to the Future Cued Podcast. I'm Australian food futurist Tony Hunter, and in these podcasts I talk to leading industry figures about how new food technologies will influence the future of food. Hi everyone, Tony Hunter, Futurist for Food here. I'm in San Francisco again, and I'm with Brian Spears from New Age Meats. Brian's a co-founder of New Age Meats, and I last spoke to him back in September of last year before the Good Food Conference, and so much has changed, I thought I just had to come back and talk to Brian again, talk about some of the great progress he's been making. Hi, Brian. Hi, how you doing? I'm good, I'm good. I tell you what, it's a bit colder out there than I'm used to. This 11 degrees C is killing me, man, I tell you. I don't know what that means as American, but uh, yeah. <laughs> well, uh, you know, like you look at the I trust that that's cold. Yeah, that, 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 that is cold. We're talking about 50 and I'm yeah. used to 80s and 90s, right, yeah. so uh, yeah, it's, it's cold for yeah. me. <laughs> I'm joking. I've lived in Europe for quite a while. Um, well, Brian, as, as I was saying there, um, you guys have done so much since I spoke to you last. I think you've had a release of some product to the journalists. All sorts of things have been going on, so give me a little bit of a background on what's happened since we last spoke early in September. Sure, yeah, that, I think that was right before the Good Food Conference, <clears throat> and shortly thereafter we had a tasting event with, uh, we, we invited about 40 people to come and taste our product, uh, so there were some journalists, some of our, basically just people in the industry, and then some of our investors, uh, and it was a pork sausage product, and from all accounts it was really, it was reviewed extremely well. Um, people said it was meat, <laughs> it tasted like meat because it is meat. Um, talked about the characteristics of the sausage, said it was smoky and savory, tasted like breakfast. That's according to Business Insider. Um, so overall, very, we're very pleased about how that went. Um, and then, as you noted earlier, over we chatting earlier, and so we had our demo day or our uh, Indie Bio demo day. And so we gave an update on basically our science, uh, milestones, and so some pretty exciting stuff there as well. So. Uh, our removal of <clears throat> fetal bovine serum from our stem cell culture and our fat cell culture, and we are replacing that with a less expensive option, and also our proprietary bioreactor that we're able to achieve 10 times the density as the industry standard in there, cell density, So, and a bunch of other things that allows us to drop the cost that have allowed us to drop the cost quite a bit. And your last one you've got to be uh, fetal bovine serum free is the muscle cells. Correct. How are you going there? Are you close or is still got a yes. way to go with that one? Yes, yeah. And that's a, <clears throat> this is one of the big factors. So when we say we've dropped the cost by 15 times, over 15 times, our original cost of making the sausage in September. So mid-September we had a cost, now we're making about 15 times cheaper. Uh, and that is specifically because of removing the fetal bovine serum from from the stem cell and the fat cell culture. And the muscle is right around the corner, uh, and then it's going to drop even more. And again, like it's, it's important to know that these are less expensive options uh, because removing fetal bovine serum has already been done in pharma, if you will, in human regenerative medicine. And so you can get FBS replacements. They're just more, much more expensive. And so the trick in cell cultured meat is to make it less expensive. So we, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't serve our purposes if we replace FBS and then make it with something more expensive. So in our case, it's across the board less expensive. I think the reason for that would probably be because FBS is the standard in human cell culture and the plant-based or non-FBS is the exception, so the exception is more expensive than the rule. More, it, it depends. So there are inherent problems with FBS even if you, even if you don't take into account like the ethical issues, right? Uh, so obviously it's the, it's the, I shouldn't say obviously, it's the extracted serum from a pregnant cow. 
right? Yep. Uh, so it's not, a, it's not an extremely pretty process to think about. Um, but then there, besides it being expensive, it's also inconsistent batch to batch. So it's a naturally derived product. And so the, all of the, um, essentially the proteins that are in there, uh, the growth proteins that actually do what we want them to do, they're in different concentrations between batches, which means you can't do good science on it, right? So if you want to have a reproducible science, uh, basically like each batch being able to give you like a reproducible result, FBS is a terrible platform to build on. So any, any like regenerative medicine that's trying to move away from that is already using FBS-free alternatives, and so we are as well. And the key thing, that the difficult part about FPS, that's getting the growth factors right. Is that right? In the replacement <clears throat> product. It's the growth factors and it's in the right concentration, right? So, uh, and then also in our case, again, so we are, we are very motivated to drop the costs uh, as opposed to, so if you think of our kind of a, the analogous industry, which is human tissue engineering, there's a lot of upward pressure on the cost. And so if you think about it, they, they want more and more functional tissue. So if I were to take, I often use the example of a, of a heart. So if I take a biopsy from your heart and I grow out uh, in, in flasks your tissue and then put it back inside of you, I want that to last in you for the next 40 or 50 years. I want that tissue to be highly functional. So uh, signaling pathways and it's supposed to beat like a heart. Whereas in our case, the, the tissue that you eat needs to taste good and be healthy. But beyond that, it's gonna pass out of your system for a couple, in a couple days. And so we actually, we want that, that tissue to be, or the tissue can be less functional. And so that is a downward pressure on the cost. And so we're part of this new industry that's exploring these downward pressures on cost. And so when we look at you know, FBS and replacement for FBS, we're seeing like, what can we actually remove to make the tissue less expensive as opposed to what can we add to it to make it more functional? Right. And when we see this all the time, people think, oh gee, that's gonna be you know, less lower quality. We already see throughout science, in things like gases. You have food grade nitrogen, you have medical grade nitrogen. Mm -hmm. And because the requirements, as you pointed out, Ryan, are different between the two. Correct. And um, yeah, anything to do with uh, human medicine and application to humans directly has to be highly, highly regulated and very, very pure. Now, the other thing that you were, we were talking about last time was your data-based approach. And How's that one going for you? You're still finding that ability to crunch the data is really making a big difference to your progress? Absolutely. So essentially IndieBio is a, it's an accelerator and so we have we kind of mapped out our entire platform, our automation and data science platform, and so we were prototyping various parts of that during IndieBio. Uh, and even in the parts that we prototype, we've seen essentially if you think of cell culture, uh, you think of taking cells and then they grow and they multiply. And there are certain things you can do, you can add to the cells to make them change their behavior. And so oftentimes though that takes several days to, for you to play that out, days or weeks for you to know if, if what you tried is successful. And so in our case, since we're using a, like an automation data approach, we can look at the cells and we can observe the cells and we can measure some of their characteristics and we can actually find far earlier when something is going to go down a certain pathway. Uh, so a, a biomarker that you would see later on. Well, if you use, in our case, some machine learning earlier in the cycle, then you can shorten, shorten these feedback loops, if you will, by several days. And so that just allows us to go much faster. So we can try many things in parallel and we can, we can go much faster. So the short answer to your question is yes. We've been able to, all this boils down to trying more things, dropping the cost more. So like if we, if we look at how we make our cells more stable and dropping the cost, then that means we, do, we have to do a lot of experimentation. 
And so this type of platform, which allows us to move faster experimentation, is pivotal. So that is that basically the predictive power of the models you've got, or are you able to run virtual experiments as well based on the data that you get from actual experiments? The, the example I just gave is more of like a predictive model, um, but you also brought up, can we, can we run, if you will, in silico experiments? And yes, we can do that as well. Uh, so that's, there are other examples in our platform that, that allow us to do just that. Yeah, because I was um, reading one of the articles, I think Arvind Gupta, who's the founder of IndieBio, said he has never seen any of the companies working in IndieBio work as fast as New Age Meets. And if uh, Arvind says that, then that's a real compliment. He's seen a lot. <laughs> he has seen a lot. Yeah. And he, he is not shy about telling you exactly how he, how he feels, uh, either to the positive or negative. It's always good to know where yes. you stand, Brian. Exactly. <laughs> sometimes for better, sometimes for right, worse. Exactly. <laughs> okay, so you've got that. You showed the product. As you say, I read multiple reviews in various magazines all saying they thought the product was absolutely great. So you must have been holding your breath and not realising yeah. it as you watched people put it in their mouths. That must have been a real experience. It was, it was a sublime moment, yes. Uh, we had tried it, I think I had mentioned, actually no, last time it hadn't happened. Um, we tried it the week before, and it was, it, it, was, it was a funny time because we, had, we, we wanted to make sure it tasted correct, and so we had pork that we'd actually purchased from the store, and we were essentially just going to do like a blind taste test, if you will. And so it was a busy kitchen, the chef was cooking, and he handed me a sample, it was like the first thing, and so I, I tried it, and like, okay, well that's bacon, you know, I have 38 years worth of eating bacon. I know what that tastes like. I said, so can I, can I try our product? And he said, that is your product. And I said, oh, that's, that's just bacon, right? It's not like that tastes like bacon. It's bacon. So bacon or sausage? So it, what we have is, a, well, what, what bacon is, if you will, is it's just like pork, muscle, and fat, right? So yeah. if you have like streaky bacon or like we, we have it here in the U.S., just bacon, um, then it's really, you have a slice that it comes from the belly, yeah. right? Yeah. That you have both muscle and fat in roughly equal proportion. Uh, so in our case, it was just ground up, right? So we, we make stem cells and we proliferate stem cells and then we split them and we induce one half, <clears throat> roughly half, to muscle, one half to fat, and then you mix them together. And so what it tastes like is just ground bacon, right? In its very purest form. And then we go and take that ground bacon and we make a sausage out of it by adding, you know, sausage casing and, and uh, spices to it. Right. And so then you get more of the sausage taste. Great, because I mean, particularly in Australia, we think of bacon, you know, I think of like a, a slice of bacon. The right. man's, man's made a slice of bacon? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, not quite, but getting not there. Not quite, yeah. So we ground that up, it would be exactly <laughs> what we made, yes. So that must be great, but I can, I, I've been in product development tastings and so on. And even though you tasted it the day before, the hour before, yeah. the pieces you give to the customers to taste, right. you just never know. Yes, it, exactly. Did something go wrong with that bit that I, I don't know about because I couldn't taste it before I gave yes. it to them? <laughs> yes, yep. But that was absolutely great. And I think from there you've gone on and you've done some funding rounds now as well. So we had an, an initial funding from IndieBio in July. So they gave us 250000 and since then, this is, you know, the mission of an accelerator would be to give you some pre-seed money, as they call it, that's the 250000 and then have you grow your company and then raise at a better valuation near the end, right? And that's, in our case, precisely what's happening. So we're raising a $3 million round now. Uh, we're actually almost finished. We have a lead investor who we, we love. We think this investor is amazing. So we are in due diligence now, which is a, a fairly in-depth process, um, and that, that will close pretty soon. Oh, that's great. So, with roughly a month or two, and then you should be ready to rock and roll and 
What are you actually going to use that money for, that funding round for? Right, so we have mapped out, so we just call that deployment of funds, right? So you, they gave us $3 million, and what do we do with it? And so it goes to headcount, so we're hiring. Uh, so we make two things here at New Age Meets. We make meat and we make jobs. Uh, so there are really good jobs, and they're, right now we're hiring engineers, we're hiring scientists, so stem cell biologists, and we just hired a lab automation engineer. Uh, we're hiring also like data engineers as well. And so, and then we're also hiring some process engineers, right? And then across a, a lot of other roles as well. Uh, and then also equipment, of course. So we need to, we are an automation company. So we have automation equipment that we purchase. Uh, so in the world of data companies, we have like data storage that we'll purchase. And then all the other basically accoutrements that go to running a business. So how long will that funding last you for? Is that a 12-month, two-year, three-year funding timeline? Yeah, so if you if you ask most people like how long does a, a seed round last, it, the typical answer is 12 to 18 months. And so we've modeled it on that time frame. And with your automation, you shouldn't have too many problems in being able to, to meet that timeline. But you've got a lot, live up, lot to live up to now, Brian. Yes, we've been told you made a name and set a standard. We've been beating a drum on that, and uh, we do feel that we are the company poised to take advantage of that. Uh, it's, it's, it's the emphasis, it's a, from the very beginning, we see that as the pivotal piece in this whole puzzle. Like how do you bring cell culture meat to market faster and cheaper or less expensive? Yeah. Uh, and so the, the, you need to run more experiments and you need to really understand what are, what are the pathways that are going to make the cell more stable and then healthy and tasty. Uh, and this automation data platform is the way to do it. Sounds great. So now, given that you get to your seed round, so let's end of 2019, you've done everything. Hey, I'll pass. I really raised the bar there for you. Thank you. Let's just, let's just, let's just assume that. I appreciate the confidence. Yeah. <laughs> hey, well, what I saw the last one, it's in September compared to now, Brian, you got my confidence. Um, I appreciate that. So, when do you think there would be product going to market? So, it turns up either like some companies have done in a restaurant or something high-end and mm. then going to consumers or are you looking to go straight to a consumer selling? What's your timeline and your plans for <clears throat> the actual sales and marketing of the product? Sure. So in two years, we will be, we, we talk about this brew pub experience, right? Uh, where we are combining together sausage in the form of this bratwurst, right? So we say bratwurst is, uh, it's, it's something that we know, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's sausage, right? And we combine that together with other products of technology. The idea being that even at the tasting that we held in September, uh, we stood up in front of these giant reactors. So behind me were these giant steel reactors. Uh, we're raising a toast and, you know, ask the people like, hey, this beer that we're all drinking here, we don't really have a problem that's coming from these giant reactors, right? We understand the technology. In fact, like, people want to see that. And when we go to market, or you know, when, again, when we go to market, our first consumer experience is going to be in an environment like that, where they're going to see both beer and, in our case, pork, as the products of technology. So there'll be reactors that make the pork just beside the reactors that make the beer, and showing that is extremely transparent. Like that, you you will literally see how the sausage is made. I think that's a really great idea because when you mention the word bioreactor to people, mm -hmm. I think that the thing they have in their mind is nuclear reactor, bioreactor. Mm -hmm. They're both reactors. Sure. sure. Where yeah. in the science-based approach, we know they're completely different things. But when you talk fermentation vessel and yes. liken it to fermentation, you can see the tension drop in people's yeah. eyes or the lack of oh. Right. When you mention bioreactor versus mentioning fermenter, I've done that several times yep. to see people's reaction. When I present as a fermenter, 
it's an easing inverted commas from a scientific perspective, you know, fermentation, not really, but mm -hmm. they, you know what we're talking about. Sure. But it makes people, as you say, feel confident. They have a frame of reference. They have no frame of reference to a bioreactor. Mm -hmm. Biohazard, yes. Yeah. Nuclear reactor, yes. Right. Put the two together, uh, it's That's pretty scary. Yeah, 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 pretty scary stuff. But liken it to fermentation, stainless steel reactors, breweries, I think it's a great idea. And I think getting that um, concept across to the customers, everything has technology. Anyone who thinks beer is brewed like they did three, four hundred years ago is kidding themselves. Mm -hmm. Anyone who's been to a brewery and seen 100,000 litre fermenting away yeah. knows there's a huge amount of technology that goes into brewing beer. Correct. And if we just say to people, yeah, this is technology, we're not hiding that. But look, it's familiar technology. You have something to compare against. It is not scary stuff. Right. It's going to actually be a benefit to everybody. So I think that's um, a great idea there. So that's your idea for going to market rather than, say, looking at a consumer and product and getting someone to make sausages and <coughs> sell it in a supermarket or anything like that. You're thinking more introduce the experience in that way. And then what about that will give consumers a good concept of what it's about. What about though looking at volume sales mm. from there? Are you looking at volume sales then after that into supermarkets and restaurants or what's your plan there? Sure, so th th this is a product as we're talking about technology, it's a technology product. And as in the case of most technology product, the cost drops over time, right? Uh, the cost drops over time because at first it's it's a novel product, you have to find no new and novel processes for that. Uh, it's expense. It's just expensive to make. But as those products become standardized, or those processes and products become standardized in order to make what you're making, in our case, meat, uh, and then you'll also get more companies that will come in and provide those services or those, basically the ecosystem allows that whole process to just get less and less expensive. And so that's when you start to see this in the grocery store. You just see that as a, as a less expensive product. In the beginning, we definitely see that we want to have a close control over how people experience our product. Um, and so that is the brew pub experience as well. We want to talk to people. We want to say like, hey, how do you like it? Does it taste right? Do, is, it, is it everything you dreamed of? That's the type of feedback that we get when we have something in this brew pub experience. Uh, and then we'll be serving this to restaurants. So we have been inspired by, for instance, what Impossible has done. I think they've done a fantastic, so Impossible Foods, I think they've done a fantastic job about uh, in, in the method that they have brought their burgers to restaurants in the beginning and in speaking with the people at Impossible, the biggest reason they do that is to have is to make sure that the customer has a fantastic experience. And so as we as we do the same thing, then you're able to drop the cost, improve the quality, and then bring it to the grocery store in volume. I think that's the thing too, if we look at there are three things that's needed for cell-based meats to be really successful. <clears throat> One of the key things is familiarity. As we're talking about Familiarity with bioreactors, no. Familiarity mm -hmm. with brewing, yes. And as you say, get people familiar with the product, that this is just another food product, different technologies, get their familiarity, mm -hmm. and say so get the feedback. Then if you get the cost and the taste right, once those three are right, then it really becomes a mainstream acceptable product. Right. And as you say, looking at what Impossible and Beyond have done a bit the same, getting in at a few high-end restaurants, get some credibility behind the product mm -hmm. as well. Hey, this is being sold. <clears throat> this must be okay or they wouldn't be allowed to sell it. Right. That's through the consumer's mind. Yep. 
these guys at the restaurants, gee, they're chefs, mm -hmm. they're using it, that must make right. it okay too. And that all builds on the credibility of the product. And it's so when you get the cost and the taste right, and I think the other thing to remember here is, this is not primarily a food product. This mm -hmm. is primarily a technology product. Mm -hmm. And if you liken it to electronics technology, the first cell phones that came out were bricks that in today's value were worth $2,000 and wouldn't do 5% right. of what your smartphone does. Right. And look at the cost now. Yep. This is a technology that we're talking about. And as you say, Brian, technologies get cheaper and cheaper and cheaper. They mm -hmm. reach a baseline cost. We're not likely to see some of the smartphones get you know, a hell of a lot smarter as quickly as they have over the last 10 mm -hmm. or 15 years with the same price reductions. But cell-based meat is still in that fast drop area. So you've gone down 15 times in four months. Yep. You make Moore's Law look stupid. We need to, how about the Spears Law for cell-based meats? Yeah, something like that, what do you think? That's, that's flattering. I think probably it's, it's more to do with my co-founder, Andre Nakula. Uh, she, so we'll call it Nikula's Law. Nikula's Law. Yes. Okay, we're going to be christened that. That is, is now very, officially, <laughs> that is an official term yes. now, the Nikula Law, Nikula's the cell-based meat. And that makes it 150 times per year, okay. Yes. <laughs> Quick math, I like that. <laughs> As I say, lies, damn lies, and statistics, right. Brian. <laughs> that is a fantastic thing to be able to do. And so that sort of price drop, you... It's not going to take forever for the cost to come down to be at least comparable to conventional meat. I mean, I've heard some people say it's going to be 10, 20 years until we see the um, cost come down or make a significant impact on the conventional meat market. I'm saying, no, five to 10 years' time, mm -hmm. I think there's definitely going to be a major presence of cell-based meat in the meat market. Mm -hmm. you know, I think for, for two reasons. Partly it's going to be cost, Partly it's going to be the people's perception is they want to have a product that doesn't come from a slaughtered animal. And the third one is they're actually going to taste just as good or better than the conventional product as well. I, I like where your head is. Uh, I'm glad that you didn't say commodity meat. Uh, and I like to, because people say, well, when are you going to compete with commodity meat? And I say, we are not a commodity product. So we'll never compete with commodity meat because we make a better product. There's only so much that you can manipulate an animal to give you a different taste or a better taste or a different texture as far as like their meat is concerned. In our case, we control the entire experience that the cell has. We control, we control the environment, we control everything that goes into and out of the cell, which means we can make meat that tastes better than anything that's out there. And so when we talk about what our benefits are to the customer, we say the meat is tastier, it's healthier, and it's more sustainable. So, and that is not the description of commodity meat. So we're not a commodity product. I think that's the other thing too, is that what you're saying is we can actually manipulate certain parts of the production process to make an e.g. cholesterol free or very low cholesterol meat. We can manipulate the saturated, unsaturated fats in there. So we can actually look at this in some ways as a way to personalize product, at least in the broad brush strokes, to people or segments of the market that want particular products. So a particular segment of the market says, I want low cholesterol product because I have a cholesterol problem. Other people are saying, I don't, I want a normal amount of cholesterol because we need no, we all need cholesterol in our diet unless we have a major problem. And other people who are just saying, look, for health point of view, yeah, we want low saturated fats. So I think that's a big advantage of this product. I think it was um, someone from beyond was saying that the cows is not really getting any better. It's just going to be what it is. Whereas the opportunities in cell-based meat, the sky's the limit. 
And speaking of the sky's the limit, I'll ask the next one, Brian. What do you guys think, um, thinking in terms of 3D structured products like stakes, both for new age and just generally in the marketplace? Definitely. So going back to the deployment of funds that we mentioned earlier. So we have our seed round money and part of that is earmarked for scaffolded meat. So we are, we, there's a kind of order to our R&D. And so the first thing that's going to come into market are the, the ground or the minced products, like a sausage, like a hamburger. But we know that in order to really deliver to people the meat experience that, they're, that, they're, that they want, that we need to make scaffolded products. And scaffolded means essentially something that mimics an anatomy. So a steak, a pork chop, something like that. So we are working on that during our seed phase as well. We have a lot of really exciting pathways that we're exploring right now. Uh, I can't speak in too much detail about that, but we are working on it. Sounds good. Timeline-wise on that, you're obviously looking at a few years out. I mean, the, the people I've heard with the shortest timeline are the Aleph, Aleph mm. Farms guys out in Israel. They're talking about 2021 or so. Mm. But, I mean, it's not as if, if you don't beat those guys, there's no market. I mean, there's, mm-hmm. there's not a... Uh, zero-sum game at the moment and this even if three or four people would have come out with stakes and you didn't come out with it for a year or two after them the marketplace is so wide open that it's not going to be a problem but i think it's interesting as you say that that's the next logical progression for i suppose the vast majority of cell-based meat companies is to look at some sort of structured product because the other model i'm thinking about is there is so much hamburger meat and there's so much trimmings, commodities, you're saying commoditized trimmings around, that I wonder whether there's not a place in the market for a company that just simply makes ground cell-based meat product. There are so many millions, billions of pounds, kilos of this product sold worldwide that I think to supplant the animal-based industry or to offer the full experience, as you say, we need steak products. But I just wonder, you know, someone who could just pump out millions of pounds of minced cell-based products. I just wonder whether that's not a, you know, a major market opportunity, whether the market will segment out into those people really, really efficient at making ground cell-based meat and those really, really efficient at making steak products that you may not necessarily have a company making both because they are different technologies. After you've got the cells, you use a scaffolding to actually structure the products, quite a different type of technology. Would that be a reasonable assumption? It's quite different technology if you're on a scaffold than in a 3D structure than what you need scaffolding as far as a ground meat product goes? The technology is different, but it's important to note that everything upstream of that is the same, if you will. So everything that involves the, the cell lines, the cell banking, the cell culture media, growing and proliferating the cells, uh, and then finally, when you get to that, that point where we call the induction or the moving from stem cells into muscle and fat cells and connective tissue, if you're going to do that as well, then that's more where that scaffolding part comes in. Then you kind of like, you can, you can branch out. So when we say like, well, different companies work on different things, it's possible. Uh, we are exploring both and it really just, it's a, it's a market need, right? So if, if people tell us that like, hey, the, the thing that we want the most is just more of really tasty, healthy, minced meat, then we'll make more of that, right? But if, the, if people are saying like, hey, what, what we really desire is like a steak, or and that's, that's what's really gonna make me eat the cell-based, if, if you can replicate a steak, then we'll focus on that. Yeah. 
as you say, it comes down in the end, what does the consumer want? And I think that's part of your beer and bratwurst as well, is find out what the consumer wants. It's part of almost that minimum viable product approach from Lean Innovation, which mm -hmm. is get a product out there, get some feedback from the customer, modify the product, go and test that with the customer, and that almost infinite feedback loop until you have something that's really, really good. I mean, that's, we mentioned Impossible Foods before, that's what Impossible did. Their product they've had on the market for a while is pretty good. Mm -hmm. But from what I hear, the version 2 that got released at CES has just blown people's mind. I am. I've I been think. reading about it. It's yeah. I mean, someone said if um, the first product was a Sizzler steak, this one's a Kobe Wagyu steak, this one. Wow. So that was the difference <coughs> that they saw between the two products. So as you say, it's interesting to see, get that product to market, make the improvements. And it shows what you were saying too, plant-based and cell-based. These, we're talking about version one products, version 1.0. This is not right. something that's been around for a long time. And the opportunities for improvement in terms of the taste and quality and attributes of the product is only going to get better and better as time goes by. Now, the other thing that we'll look at here is, okay, so we've got the products, we're gonna get them to market, but I think one of the key things at the moment, particularly in the States, and a little bit less so, but coming the same way in Australia, is regulation. So what are these products going to be considered as in terms of their, where they sit in the marketplace, what can they be called, what can they be labelled as? I think you were at that USDA, FDA meeting a few months ago, and uh, some interesting things came out of that. Immediately after the GFI conference, I think yourself, Brian, and a few other companies got together and you decided now that the term to be used for products is not clean meat, which is something that really um, antagonises, if you like, the conventional meat industry. But you guys now are going to look at using the term cell-based meat. So I think that came out of the meeting. So to expand a little bit on, on that for me. Yeah, the, the meeting <clears throat> that you're referring to is in October. There was a joint meeting between the USDA and FDA in Washington, D.C. And uh, I went to that, and that was at the USDA headquarters. So I met a lot of the people working at the FDA and USDA and just all, all the people that support essentially making our food products safe. And it was a really, it was a great meeting. And what was really encouraging is at the beginning, and um, it's, it's important to understand the U.S. regulation system for meat, you know, terrestrial animals, right? So meat, you know, land, land, land walking animals instead of fish, right? So in the U.S., terrestrial animals have a dual regulatory, or there are two regulatory agencies. There's the FDA and the USDA. And the FDA manages everything that's kind of upstream, including the food and medicine that goes into livestock. And then the USDA will manage like the slaughter and processing of meat. And then if it goes further downstream into processed foods, then the FDA may come in again, right? So we have, if you will, kind of a, a system that involves both. And so when we're now moving to a system now that re, or like our technology that recreates terrestrial animals, uh, and again, in a, in a more healthy, tasty, sustainable manner, it's, it would be really difficult to change the underlying system if we want to move quickly to market, <clears throat> if we want to if we want to show people that this is, um, if you will, that it, we're playing on a level playing field, that we're not doing anything that, that we're not like bringing something to market that isn't going through the normal regulatory processes. We want people to feel extremely safe that this is, that we are treated just as products from traditional slaughtered animals, right? So we are, we are going to be regulated by the same agencies, we're going to have a lot of the same processes in place in order to regulate us. As far as a USDA inspector, uh, that's going to be on staff at our facilities. So these types of statements from the joint, from the two agencies are really encouraging 
The fact that they moved so quickly is extremely encouraging. So if we look at the timeline, July, FDA had a meeting. In October, USDA and FDA had a meeting. And then the next month, they issued a joint statement outlining how the process will work. Right, so that is, and that is extremely quick. Like, so I, I think I mentioned before, my father is career FDA, so grew up, his first almost job out of college was to work as an FDA inspector in food, and then spent his whole career at the FDA. And so I know how long typically those things take for the FDA to make these actions, and the fact they move so quickly means that they're really on board with the pace that we're moving. So they want self-cultured meat products to be safe, they want us, us as manufacturers or us, us as companies that produce it to be able to move quickly and provide safe products for our customers. And I think the, the issue that we've got here um, is that there are so many layers of regulation as well that can go on. I mean, we've had the instance of uh, Missouri trying to basically define meat as from a slaughtered animal and so that would basically mean that cell-based meats can never be called meat. That's, I know, going through the courts at the moment. I don't think there's been a, a final ruling on that. The nice thing about having both the FDA and the USDA involved is that the USDA has these preemption rights. What the preemption rights mean are that federal agencies have final say as far as designation of products over state agencies. So you brought up the example of Missouri. Uh, there's also Nebraska. who are both states that are looking to make labeling laws uh, around cell culture meat, right? Uh, that maybe it won't be called meat, according to some state legislators. But however, if the USDA decides that we're meat, then it doesn't matter, because they'll just say that actually on a federal level, this is meat, and you can't make another state-by-state -state law that says we're something different. And so that is something that's really encouraging that came out of the, the meetings that we've had over the past few months. Okay, so I mean, as you say, look, that, that's encouraging. I know how long government agencies normally take, whether it's here or Australia, processes can be slow because they have so many other things happening and just the way bureaucracies of government or non-government work. And as you say, to see this sort of progress in such a short period of time and to see the cooperation between USDA and FDA, irrespective in some ways of any vested interest groups on either side of the conversation, I think uh, bodes very well. Because as we were talking about before, Brian, before we started the podcast, if the States and Australia don't do it, other countries will. So it's either get on board or get left behind because this technology is too attractive for countries that don't have large conventional um, manufacturing or farm ag agriculture systems that they take these on board, they're going to leave the rest of us behind. Definitely. And the USDA actually recognizes that. So USDA Secretary Sonny Perdue has said previously that we don't want these companies to feel that they need to go abroad in order to receive fair treatment. We want to make sure they receive fair treatment here in the U.S. as well, and that the technology and innovation stay here, if you will. That's always a problem, isn't it, you know, that if you legislation doesn't keep up with technology, technology will go where the legislation is, and that's really the end thing. If you've got an idea and you feel where you're based, that country is not going to come to the party with making a legislative decision whether they agree or not agree is irrelevant, but at least so you know where you are. Business hates uncertainty. Mm -hmm. Businesses will migrate to where the certainty is. Right. If other countries have legislative certainty, then no matter how much you may want to stay where you are, you have an obligation to your backers and everyone else to go where you can be successful as a company. And I think Australia or the states want to see other countries um, get the advantage of 
technologies which in the US case, you know, homegrown technologies going somewhere else. Doesn't seem to make much sense to me. Precisely right. Okay, well, looking further ahead, we've talked about how to start off with our beer and bratwurst, then we get on some 3G steaks and beer. Beer seems to be coming through quite mm -hmm. strongly here. Um, what about other species? Are you looking at any other species as well? We definitely are. Um, so pork has been fantastic because we've been able to move very quickly with pork. And that's because of the mountain of prior research that's been done on pork. There, there's no animal that we consume in quantity that's had more research done on it than pork. And that's because pork cells are very, they behave very similarly to human cells. And so there's just a lot of therapeutics and a lot of research that's been done on pork. Moving forward in our seed phase, we are also exploring other types of animals as well. So stay tuned. <laughs> and I thought you were going to do something away there for a second. Just one it. second. I thought you'd like, oh, well, damn. It was worth a try, worth <laughs> a try. So just wrapping up here, Brian, we've covered a lot of ground and we can see the fantastic progress you guys have made in such a short period of time. Nakula's Law. I, 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 I've <laughs> got, I, I, I'm going to maybe get a trademark on that <laughs> somewhere. And, you know. She'll enjoy that. Yes. <laughs> So we've covered a lot of ground there, Brian, and looking at the future of the cell-based industry in terms of all the, the different meat products, how do you see that going? Do you see that as being long-term a niche-based product? Do you see that as being a part of the overall market coexisting with conventional meat? Or do you see that eventually, given the advantages in the manufacturer's cell base, that eventually, whether we're talking 10, 20, or 50 years out, that will eventually supplant conventional meat-based agriculture? It's a great question. And we, Andra and I, my co-founder, her and I, we, we didn't start this to be a niche product. Uh, this, we are extremely mission-focused. We see the cell culture meat industry as being able to positively change the world, positively change the environment, human health, animal welfare. And it doesn't happen if we're a niche product. So we have to look at how society and the population is also growing. Uh, so we are right now 7.4 billion people, and we're going to be moving to 9.7 billion people by 2050. And so that those increased people that are going to start eating, what are they going to eat? So my friend Jack Bobo in Trexon, he's been a long-time food observer and spokesperson. He says, like, the cell culture meat market, our whole industry can grow by leaps and bounds, even if we just serve the, the people coming online, if you will, the new people in the next 30 years. And the industrial animal agriculture system could not even change if that's the case. Now, again, for in our mission, we see that environmentally, human health and animal welfare wise, we think that the whole system can be much better across the board. And so we see a future where this technology enables healthier, tastier, more sustainable food for everybody. So a uh, niche product, no. Changing the way we experience food, yes, for the better. The other thing is that not only we're we looking at those extra two and a half, three billion people come along after 2050, but the rise in the affluence of a lot of the other countries coming up throughout Asia and Africa in the next 30 years, Traditionally, as people get more affluent, they want more meat and more protein. Even if we see drops in meat consumption in some of these countries, China wants to see 50% less, the UK is trying to get people to eat less meat, we're still going to see a net rise of a huge amount 
of maybe 50% or maybe you know, or more in terms of the requirement for meat products. If we look at the amount of land currently devoted directly and indirectly to growing conventional meat, our chances of being able to serve that market are very, very small. Now what that's going to do would be to drive the cost of meat up enormously because demand will exceed supply. So I mean we're seeing, I saw in Australia just before I left, lamb cutlets, 50 Australian dollars, 35 US dollars a kilo. And that's going to be the low end of the spectrum in 30 years time if we don't have increasing product to the marketplace. So if we have a look at it from that point of view, from a consumer, that's great news. If we can take the pressure off the price rise and off the demand, then that has to be good for consumers. So as you pointed out, the conventional meat industry could pretty well stay where it was, and if then cell-based meats could service the next three billion people, that's a third of the market. That's, you know, I think one of the um, things, um, I think one of the, uh, Paul Shapiro's articles, one of the things there, they're talking about only 30% of people would try cell-based meat. And I've tweeted out that, so they're only going to lose 30% of the market? Mm -hmm. <laughs> I think you'll take 30% of what it is, what yeah. about $900 billion yeah. market, world market? $300 billion, you'll take 10% of that, Brian? Think I, think we, I think we're just fine. Yeah. <laughs> I think we'd be able to grow leaves and bounds, yeah. yeah. I think you could probably live with that one. Huh? I think so, yeah. Employ a lot more people and save sustainable jobs. That's... Yeah. That's great because I mean, yeah, we look at the requirements for sustainability. That mm. is really is a key going forward because we are lacking the resources to do the things that we do now for everybody in the world that's here at this point, let alone by 2050. Right. We need better ways of doing things than we're doing them now. And I think that's, you said, part of your mission is basically do things better than we're doing now, make it sustainable and then look at the larger picture as well, the animal welfare side of things, because I mean, I say I've been in the conventional meat industry for a long time. You've had a lot of experience um, with conventional meat. Some of the practices are not good. When I think of the general consumer, looking at trying to make people feel guilty for eating meat is not going to work. Most people are going to go, so you're trying to tell me I shouldn't eat meat. I'm a horrible, cruel, nasty person. I think I'm going to have a steak. If you say to people, and this is the benchmark for me. Someone puts a hamburger in front of me, let's call it pork hamburger, and one has a picture of Jesse and says, Jesse died for your hamburger. <laughs> and the other one says, there it is, and Jesse is still alive. And these two hamburgers taste exactly the same and they're just as good for you. Which one do you want to eat? I'm just gonna, I'm gonna eat the one where the animal didn't have to die. Why do I need to feel good about myself because an animal died to feed me rather than didn't. And I think for the, most of the people I've spoken to, when I put them that way, they just go, well, yeah, I, I take the one where it didn't die. Yeah. And then when I lay on top of that, let's tell them, not are they identical, but this one's lower cholesterol, this one has better nutrition profile, and it's the same price, and it's the same taste, and this one the animal died, this one the animal didn't then they're even quicker to go, why wouldn't I take that one? Right. So I think that's the key thing. That's why I see cell-based meat as a game changer. Because when you look at plant-based protein, people either got to want to eat plant-based for a definite focus on health, animal welfare, where cell-based is a game changer where you can say to people, it's exactly the same product 
and these are all the benefits that go with it, and you're not losing anything. You're only gaining and doing some good things. That is why I think cell-based meat will make such an impact, is because it offers the average consumer a clear choice, and ethically, I believe, people will just go, no, I don't need to kill something to feel good about myself. I don't have to feel that I'm a real man because I had a real steak for a real dead animal. Some people will, I don't think the majority of people will, and that's why I think what you guys are doing is so fantastic with the technology and everything else. It is a game changer in the food industry I haven't seen in my 30, 40 years that I've been working in the food industry. So, Brian, I take my hat off to you. It's been great talking to you again. Thanks for all that. And anything you want to add just at the end? Well, I did want to add also on that. So, uh, Oklahoma State University last year did a survey of Americans. Uh, 90% of them eat meat. 47% of them want to ban slaughterhouses. So people don't want slaughter, they want meat. And so they look at a industry like ours, which makes slaughter-free meat, and it's really compelling. It's like, oh my God, I can finally eat what I want, and I don't have this ethical dilemma. Like, so a lot of us deal with an ethical dilemma. I said earlier that 38 years I was eating meat, and then two years ago, more or less, I stopped eating because of this issue. Because the more I looked and the more I started researching this market, I found that myself, I feel like it's, I'm not going to eat meat until I eat our meat again, right? Until like our meat's on the market. And so I'm in a lucky position because I can eat our meat, right? That's, that's not too hard. If you look at, so there's a research firm called Faunalytics, and they say for every person right now who's a vegetarian or vegan, there are about four or five times that many who were at some point, but have gone back. It, it can be difficult to maintain a vegetarian and vegan lifestyle. Right? Uh, it's, it's not the easiest thing, especially like outside of big metropolitan cities. It ends up being very difficult uh, because our ecosystem is built around meat in a lot of cases and around cheap meat. So the answer, as you noted, is not to guilt people into eating less of it. It's actually to make a market-based solution where you give them healthier, tastier, more sustainable meat in the same accessibility so they can go buy it at a restaurant or a grocery store. And then they don't have to make this, they don't have to like carry this burden all the time of trying to do a very ethical thing, but, but having difficulty doing it. So we just make that choice much easier for them. And Brian, I can't think of a better way to finish the podcast. So thanks very much again for all your time. And I look forward to seeing you uh, over at the uh, Alternative Protein Show in a couple of days' time. I look forward to it. Thank thanks. you very much. It's a pleasure. Thanks, Brian. Bye. Thanks for listening to this podcast. And join me next time for more exciting insights into the future of food.